What if everything you're searching for is already inside of you? Hi, I'm Cassandra Goodman, and I believe that true power comes from staying connected to who we really are at our core. This is a podcast about what it means to stay true to ourselves and why authentic leadership is such tricky business. You'll hear inspiring real life stories from big hearted leaders. I hope these stories help you to remember that true power comes from within. So today on True Power, I am very excited to be speaking with Andrew Pritchett. Andrew is known on LinkedIn as that CIO guy. (laughs) Welcome, Andrew. Hi, welcome. Thank you. So I'm going to just tell you a bit about Andrew's background and then Andrew, I'll invite you to um, fill in the blanks, the things that I've missed that are important. So Andrew is a deeply experienced, highly innovative chief information officer and a chief information security officer. I've not heard that acronym before, the CISO. Is that how I say it? Yeah, CISO. CISO. Yeah, so definitely looking after the cyber aspect at times for different roles. Okay, Uh, great. So, and you bring a strong track record of leading successful digital transformations for major accounting and advisory firms, including Grant Thornton, Norton Rose Fulbright, and currently at Monash. Andrew is passionate about developing people and teams and driving positive change to meet the ever-evolving technology needs of business. Outside of work, Andrew enjoys mountain bike riding, technology, drawing, and hanging out with his highly mischievous 14-year-old son. Um, what else is important, Andrew, to mention about who you are and the wonderful work you do in the world? Yeah, I think um, I was thinking about this. I sort of didn't have a traditional entry into corporate, so I, I didn't do too well with VCE or school. Um, I, I scraped a pass at, at school. Like when I say scraped, I got like 51%, something like that. So I was very lucky to pass. And uh, I really just went to work straight away uh, a week later, I was working in a sheet metal factory. In a, and, a sheet metal factory? Ah. And I, I was there for two years. And I probably would have never left, but I was fired. Um, and that, you know, started my process of, okay, what do I do? I was actually quite happy working in a sheet metal factory, doing stuff, seeing what you'd completed at the end of the day. And you sort of had this strange satisfaction. Um, I wasn't fired for anything bad. They wanted me to be an apprentice and it probably wasn't, for me, uh, mainly because you have to take a significant pay cut to become an apprentice. So it was more about not taking a big pay cut. And um, so there I went on and worked at bowling alleys. Um, Then I got fired from there. And uh, so I ended up getting fired a few times until I went back to school to sort of learn technology because I always had an interest in it. Mm -hmm. And that was when I first got my first corporate job after uh, doing some technology stuff like maybe not till I was 26. So didn't have a degree, didn't have any formal education. Um, I went to TAFE to to learn enough and I got a night shift job just as a basic technology support person on night shift where you weren't allowed to, you didn't have anyone to talk to. It was basically you were just by yourself all night and I was there for seven years, uh, Cassie. Um, And I was really happy, but then just things fell differently and I ended up getting sort of a team and changing jobs during the start of the internet and booming that sort of networking stuff. So yeah, that's a, yeah, I think that's probably important to note that I didn't have a traditional sort of pathway into corporate. 
Mm, interesting. And I imagine given how rapidly technology changes, even if you had done a degree all those years ago, how much of it would still be relevant, I wonder. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's true. I think I actually said that to someone like a couple of decades ago, oh, you didn't do a degree. And I said, what what use? I was in a job interview. I'm saying, I'm not sure what use a degree from like 1990 would be in 2010. Subsequently, I did my MBA because I did realize that to get a, you know, a better job, you had to have some education. So. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. And so you, you, you describe some of your weekend passions also as technology. So you tell us about, um, you know, the passion you bring for technology, why technology in the first place. And um, yeah, what, what do you play with on the weekends when it comes to technology? I'm intrigued about that. Yeah. So it's really interesting. I had a great dad who, you know, decided one day well what happened oh, oh my god what happened is i he used to do scratchy tickets back in like the the 70s early 80s or whatever and uh he every now and then he would bring me home a you know dollar scratchy or whatever it was and no one ever won anything and one day i scratched the ticket and i scratched off like a thousand dollars i think in like 1980 which was a lot of money and that was about the same cost as a computer back in 1980 um, and my dad quickly took the thousand dollar ticket off me, put it in his pocket and gave me a $5 note and said, here's your winnings. And I like, I was a bit disappointed, but like, uh, it wasn't until like I was 30 that I realized he actually, about a week later, I got a computer showed up in my bedroom. Um, and that's probably how that came about. And then, you know, I just sort of started coding, uh, creating games out of magazines. So in the early 80s, you could buy a magazine that would have all the code, like 10,000 lines of software code. And I would ha you had to retype it. So I'd type 10,000 lines of code, create a game based on, not my own idea, just create the game. Then I'd copy that and sell that at school to other people who had kids. So I was selling it for like a dollar or 50 cents or whatever to make some pocket money. So that's how probably I started. And you know, I didn't do great at school because I was always typing on the computer at night, probably. Um, and then, you know, more so that just seemed to be something that I was really good at. Um, it came naturally and, you know, grateful for that opportunity. And yeah, it just seemed to just fall into it with no planning, no strategy, just tumbled my way through life so far. Wow. What an amazing story that, that, that you're, um, learning with technology began from a scratchy ticket. I love that. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine I would have got a computer ever without that scratchy ticket. So, Was that a Commodore 64? Yeah, yeah, it definitely was a Commodore 64, but it had all the bells and whistles with the monitor and the tape drive. And my my dad, he, yeah, so he, he went full out. I think he probably went to Dick Smith, which I don't know, still around, but definitely not around the same as it used to be. That's where he used to go, or Tandy or somewhere. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, I remember and, my Commodore 64. I think I wrote two lines of code and gave up. It was all a bit hard for me. I didn't know about the magazines, though. Oh, the magazines were great, yeah. <laughs> I used to get, like, magazines sometimes at op shops, sometimes wherever. They'd go around school and from the library. So hire a, borrow a magazine from a library and then type out, like, you know, two or three programs out of the magazine. Then if it was a good game, I'd try to sell it. I love it. I love it. So... I know, Andrew, you think of, you've thought about uh, what stories you might share for our conversation today about the tricky business of staying true to ourselves. So I'd love to ask you and invite you to share a story from your past or, or your present when you realised you were not being true to yourself. So, I mean, I really 
first of all, I'm really grateful for the opportunity. I'm really grateful for the podcast. I can't even imagine how much work goes into it. The books I've read, I'm actually really interested. It's been really good to listen. And yeah, so first of all, thank you. And I actually thought about this quite a lot because I didn't want to kind of let you down. I'm pretty nervous as well because, you know, it's not my sort of area of expertise, someone, some might say. But I thought about it and in truth, I, I probably struggle every day. Um, every meeting, you know, I have to try to work out what part of myself I need to to give to get an outcome. Because um, sometimes being completely transparent or authentic can be counterproductive to an outcome for the business. So there's a bit of a bit of you know negotiation in my own head in meetings. Um, so it's probably something I do struggle with all the time that's probably why i really appreciate the the podcast because it actually does sort of expose it um that it's not just the way i think and i spoke to my friend this morning um by a text and we explained i was going on this podcast and he's like oh great and he's like you can't say anything andrew and i'm like why and he said you know this is not what you do like if you're in corporate that you don't talk about being yourself like no one wants to hear that so it's a really interesting it's a real world stigma. And I don't know if it's even worse in IT because when you're in IT, you're sort of like considered the nerd in the group perhaps and the CEO and the strategy and the, you know, in the execution, but more and more the technology is actually driving like where the rubber hits the road. So yeah, I, I definitely struggle with it all day and I can see it around me for a lot of the people who are in technology are probably still struggling with that. But uh, for me, I, I have so many examples, but the one that jumps out at me when I was, uh, it's probably early 2000s and I was working at um, Diners Club, which is a credit card that's now defunct, I think, in Australia. And um, they had voluntary redundancies and uh, a couple of the people in the team put their hand up for voluntary redundancies. And at that time, you couldn't work there if you worked there for, once you got a redundancy, you couldn't work there again for 12 months. Um, and we had a particular bespoke system that, you know, only a few people knew how to fix. And one guy put up his hand to take a redundancy. And so he took his redundancy and they, they hired a contractor to backfill his work. And then the one contractor couldn't keep up with his work. And then they hired a second contractor. Then they hired a third contractor. Then they had this team of four or five people um, doing this one person's work. He was really good at his job. He's really quite a talented smart person and they ended up having like four or five people trying to keep up with his workload and um it, this went on for about a year a bit over a year and they were going to hire another person now it was in this room there was a new cio i was just the infrastructure guy the nerd that barely spoke um i'd only been off night shift for three you know three years so i had hadn't talked to anyone for seven years and then there was this three-year gap where i'm learning to integrate back into society we go into this meeting room and they're talking about hiring another person. And I just said, you know, this is madness. Like when, you know, that guy's back from his overseas holiday, just hire him back and get rid of the five contractors. It makes no sense. And uh, I was just being honest, transparent and, and truthful. And the guy, the CIO at the time said, you know, that's enough, Andrew. Don't talk anymore. I said, I don't understand where your logic is on this. This doesn't make sense to me. It's not commercial. It's not anything. And he just got, he got angry and angry. And I probably wasn't the best at reading the room. I'm still not, but even then I was worse. And uh, after about two or three minutes, he just went off at me. He called me, um, he said, I was the biggest scab picker that he's ever met, um, that I can't let anything go, um, get out of his office, 
uh, you know, just he just went he just went completely nuts at me, and I was like, huh. I wasn't really upset about it. I was more just, huh. And so I went down to uh, my desk, and then there, there was a guy working there at the time. His name was Frank. He was a lovely guy. B comes down and he grabs me and he says, "Let's go for a coffee." Because he was in the meeting, and he goes, "You know, Andrew, you're really smart, but you got to stop talking. You got to stop saying what you think." And I sat there and I went, "Huh." I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to be in the job and not try to do the right thing. Um, so at that point, that immediately after that meeting, I went and got another job. So I got, I was sort of resigned in about a week. Um, but I actually preparing for this meeting with you, Cassie, like I realized that probably stuck with me even today. Uh, so when I'm in a meeting, I'll like, don't say anything, don't cause a ripple, shut up. And it's all Frank's advice from like early 2000s that has stuck with me. And for 10 years, I thought it was great advice. I actually did think it was really good advice. Like that was the best advice. If you had to ask me, you know, in 2017, what's the best advice in your career? I would have told you, shut up, Andrew. Don't talk. And it wasn't until, honestly, until I started listening to your podcast, until I sort of had a bit of other you know, things. And I've had some really great mentors as well. Like, so I've had some really good people to learn from. Um, I realized that probably my voice and probably what I have to say was really important. Subsequently, after I left, they fired the five contractors and hired the guy back. It was actually the smart play because it made no sense. (laughs) But it wasn't until about a month after I left, I heard that they'd hired that guy back. Um, So yeah, that's probably... And that led to a pattern for the next, you know, two decades where I would be in a meeting and just find myself not saying anything, even though I had something to say. Mm. Wow. Okay. That was my. Uh, I love it. <laughs> what an, what a powerful story. I had goosebumps as you were sharing that multiple times. And I feel like so many listeners can relate to this of biting our tongues, not rocking the boat, you know, I heard the other day um, a company had done some research into what percentage of people's effort goes into what they described as image management, which is basically putting a mask on and you know suppressing, hiding, denying, um, you know, basically um, not displaying what's going on inside of ourselves for fear of some sort of reputational or you know career limiting outcome, and up to forty percent of our energy in our week can go to that. In some organizations, this research said up people spend up to 60% of their time and energy on image management. So this is such um a, a widespread challenge. And you know, I, I think I've heard it described as a second job. Like we all have our day job, you're the CIO, but but in the wrong, or let's say in a culture that doesn't let us be ourselves, and we've got this second job which is the biting of one's tongue, second guessing what what we should share, um, hiding aspects of ourselves that feel inconvenient. Um, and it's no wonder we're so exhausted, right? Yeah. I uh yeah. So I think it also is bad for technology people. I mean, I wanna be I I think I'm an advocate for that because I think uh, it's a bit of like negative visualization. It's like you can see what's going to happen. And so sometimes I can see what's going to happen in like six weeks. And I sh- assume everyone in the room can see the same thing. 
but they're, they're not looking at it from like a, a system perspective. They're looking at it from a political perspective or a conversation or a, you know, an image perspective. Like, I'm not going to say that because I don't want to upset this person. Whereas I'll just go, I'll sit there for two weeks and go, we're not getting anywhere and we're going to miss all our dates. And then I'll bring it up and then I'll be like, uh, consider negative or the naysayer. So, mm. and then that, so I really struggle with that. And then this goes back to, I really struggle with that trying to get stuff done, trying to be positive, trying to be supportive, but also trying to be authentic in, in the, the rooms I'm in. So, yeah, it's, yeah. I think it's, it's, a, it's a massive thing. Yeah, and, and I have operated and known organisation cultures that have this kind of almost toxic positivity where anyone who dares to say that actually that green traffic light is really amber or perhaps red, you know, the old watermelon system of um, status reporting, um, is considered to be countercultural or a troublemaker or, yeah, the you know, negative or cynical when actually we're just really doing our jobs of pointing out real and legitimate risks. But it all comes down to the leader in charge, right, and how, I suppose, open they are to, to hear from all voices, even voices that bear perhaps less than ideal news. Yeah. I think not just the leader in charge. Like, I think that's 100% right. But what I've also seen is where the leader in charge is actually not like that. It's actually the systems and processes around the leader that never allows things to bubble through. And therefore, there's like a, a perception distortion of what's going on. And then everyone doesn't want to rock the boat, like you said. And, and then it just becomes this really strange mess that, you know, just goes around in circles. Working in partnerships, 160 partners at Grant Thornton in Australia. So they, they, I would say 160 of them would think that they're sort of the owners of the business and they are owners. Um, so that, that all those dynamics I've seen, um, yeah, it's really, mm. it's a really interesting. The, where I've seen it work really well is if you can have almost like a subculture or it can be, if you can create a subculture where people feel safe and, you know, supported, then you can get a lot of stuff done in a really small team, but it takes a lot of effort. And, you know, at the end of the day, someone's, you know, got to stick their neck out. Yeah, I, I would refer to that as an island of sanity to borrow. Oh, yeah, that's a really nice way of saying it, an <laughs> island of sanity. Margaret Wheatley coined that phrase and she she would say we all need islands of sanity where we can drown out that outside noise, the, the, the politicking and the watermelon status reporting. It looks green but it's really red on the inside. <laughs> Um, how do we have honest conversations with people we we trust in 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 an island of sanity and then having a key spokesperson to leave that island and go back to the executive table in the boardroom and to be able to speak truth in a way perhaps that can be heard but but even without that uh, I suppose message the message getting back to the powers that be having islands of sanity where we can rest and speak our truth and take off the mask and put aside that second job of the image management um, and just to be ourselves, I, I think is so essential for our for our well-being and our performance. Agree. So I, I would love to ask a question about that that story you shared between being called a scab picker, which is a horrific thing to be called. Oh my gosh. And your friend mentor Frank giving you that advice. And you then resigning because what 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 I'd love to ask you about is what happened between being in that situation where you 
you were treated that way, which is which is clearly you know unacceptable treatment in today from today's psychological safety, you know, psych, psychosocial hazards perspective is clearly well beyond the bounds of what is a safe work environment. But yet you say that for many decades, and I really get this, that you you really absorbed that advice from your friend, your your colleague, and you thought, yeah, it's best just to shut up. It's best to bite my tongue. But yet you still resigned. You still found yourself a different work environment. So just talk us through, you know, the tension between in a part of you deciding to be quieter, but another perhaps wiser part of you realizing that this this work environment wasn't bringing out the best in you. How how, how did you make that decision to go? Well, it was really easy because it was like early two thousands. The tech market was absolutely crushing. Like there were so many jobs. When I resigned at that point, I think I had three job offers in two weeks, and it's because I I was like had a good skill set. I was quite technical. Um, there was particular platforms on the market that were no one could find resources for. So it was like a it was like a candidate's market. I, I guess I'd been there for like 13 years. So it wasn't like I had been there only a little while. So I'd been there for like quite a long time. And I think, you know, I think what really struck me was it's probably not going to be healthy for me here. Um and, but I also really thought that Frank's advice was good. And so it was just like, I just knew that it wasn't going to be healthy for me. Um, and I think that guy, you know, the, the CIO guy, he was actually not a bad person. I, in hindsight, looking back after my career and, and probably having similar roles to what he had at the time, I could really see how someone could get stressed. And there's a lot of things that probably need to be considered. And it's not that easy for him to say, oh, this person who was made redundant, we're going to bring him back. That might have been for him a challenge to actually talk up because that would have looked dumb. Hey, we let this guy go. Now we've hired five people. So I kind of put myself now in reflection. I could see how I could get in that situation where you make a mistake and you don't want to own up to it. I'm a, I like, I don't like to own up to my mistake, but I think no surprises is actually a really smart way to, you can't hide mistakes as you get more senior, but yeah. So that was, that was where I sort of went, okay, it's probably not a great environment for me. Um, and so I had options. So you know, if you have options and it's not a great environment, um, I just decided to go with the, with the Frank stuff that really did stick with me for such a long time. And I still find myself falling back into it right now. Um, I had a really good boss. Uh, I've had really good bosses. So I'll just, I'll just single out the one that was two a couple of bosses ago, his name was Steve. And he was the CEO at a, I reported to him at a patent attorney firm. And he really wanted to know how to be successful. So he didn't care about politics. Well, he did because he was a CEO. He had to manage some. But where the rubber hit the road, he really wanted execution. And that freed me up just to have be untethered and say whatever I thought. You know, hey, if you want to do this, every dollar we save, can we invest half of it? And he's like, yeah, that sounds like a great plan. So we're able to have a really transparent and authentic conversation to actually come up with plans. And so that's when I probably started really getting traction. And that helped me get my next job because I was successful in that role. But then, you know, you still have to fit in. So looking back, I think I did it because I had options. That's probably the only reason. If I didn't have options, I probably wouldn't have gone. Mm -hmm. um, and that's that's the truth so I did like it there I did like it overall but yeah it's a it's a funny one isn't that funny like and I think it's such we're such complex beings right and things are really black and white right and yeah. as you share that kind of tension between knowing 
believing that Frank's advice was good advice, which is like just keep your mouth shut, basically, and at the same time knowing that doing that wasn't good for you, I find that so interesting and it makes me think, well, well, how do we define success? Because, you know, I've, I've had similar advice in my career. I had a boss pull me aside once and said, Cassie, you know, the problem with you is you care too much. If you want to become a senior executive, you've got to learn how to care less, which for me is kind of the equivalent of like, just keep your mouth shut. Like, it's almost what he said as well. Right. Okay. Same advice. You care too much. Why do you care? Right. Okay. And I tell this story at events and a lot of people nod. So I sense a lot of people are told that to be successful, and I'm air quoting here, you got to care less, right? And we know that caring less is corrosive to our well-being because we know at our core we are compassionate, connected, caring beings. Like that's that's our true nature. But yet we, and for a while I do think I, I hated that advice because it came from this guy who was on the outside, very successful, again, air quotes, <laughs> Um, and, and I do think I tried for a while, you know, kind of drinking a can, can of harden up in the mornings and locking my heart away and like, all right, Cassie, senior, you know, serious executives don't care. And of course that was impossible, um, impossible to, to do and corrosive to my wellbeing, but, but yet I find it so interesting. And, and I think it's so pervasive that we, we continue to do what we think we need to do suppress our caring nature suppress um ideas that we want to share that we know are important to share for fear of making someone else look stupid or um we know it's bad for us and yet we keep doing it so we must be defining success then not not our definition of success mustn't truly encompass authenticity or even well-being and what what are your thoughts on that i think in my experience as you get more senior the expectation to not care, but to outwardly, it's like the corporate values. Like I think I heard on your podcast the other day that that's the rule of threes and there's like the corporate values is five or six or a, an acronym. So the corporate values are based on establishing an acronym. And I'm like, I don't understand how you can have just magically have an acronym on your values. It doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> like if they're your values, it just, it's too much of a coincidence to then have, Oh, magic, that's an acronym. Makes no sense. So, like, I think the disconnect between what the corporate values are and then what the leadership has to do to profit shareholders, they're not, there's probably not a level of transparency there because I think they're protecting the people in the in the group. And I think, you know, my gut feeling is the way that information is now disseminated, like in 2023, 2024, that's all the paradigm shifted and they can't they can't do that anymore but the people who are actually making those decisions on values you know hey i'm going to trick everyone what a surprise our values mean is a word that you know it's like they don't get it there's a there's a shift there's a gap there and the people now have such access to information i mean corporate memes on instagram i don't know whether you've seen them they're hilarious um, corporate maths, you know, the whole thing is just like complete trolling nonstop from a whole generation, like from 14 or 10 to 30, 40 year olds um, have just had a different experience to the people who are, who are leading a lot of companies and that paradigm shifted. And they think that they can, I don't mean like BS, but the, there's a real disconnect between the words they use, especially in corporate, the words they use, and then the actions. 
and then the people feel and can actually sense the disconnect and that's where people are like exiting corporate or people are dissatisfied with their jobs or not you know they're not really growing connecting helping you know so there's a real it's a real point in time i think just because of the amount of information that's available you know so yeah i, I think that sums it up i think if a company can be really authentic come if it's a corporate come work with us you'll earn heaps of money you might not get great job satisfaction you'll earn heaps of money but that's going to set you up for your next job where you can actually choose what to do because we're going to teach you they're going to they're going to actually start being honest with what they're trying to achieve every dollar you, you earn goes to the partners or every dollar you earn goes to the shareholders like you know that that is the truth and if they can sort of get that truth but also then demonstrate care you can't bs anymore i don't think and so i think that people haven't got to that point yet they're still in that well these are our values or you know but then as soon as they're tested they go the opposite direction and that that is where and then that demonstration is a gap so yeah i don't know if that was very succinct i but... didn't need to be succinct i think you're speaking the truth you know and i think there is such a huge gap between the words on the nice corporate careers pages and the reality inside these organizations and having spent you know over two decades inside these big global multinationals i i understand that that gap between the promise and you know the fancy the fancy evp <laughs> and the fancy videos on the careers page and the day-to-day -day reality of leaders and employees within that organization and I, you know, my thinking on that there is it does come back to how do we define success, right? Because I do sense there's a lot of senior executives that that have had some form of that conditioning to be successful, again, air quote successful, success measured by status, um, a C in front of your job title, a big fat salary package and a bonus at the end of the year, perhaps a nice office, um, the company car, the fancy suits, all the trappings of how we measure success. Like to 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 have that sort of success, it requires me perhaps to deny or suppress certain parts of myself. So there's this like corrosion of well-being that happens and performance, of course, but but somehow that doesn't factor in because we don't we don't consider it within the realm of success. And I, I I sense that that's the core of the problem, right? And I, I do coach a lot of executives who perhaps find themselves suddenly on an unexpected end of a role redundancy. And it's a real identity crisis for so many because they've hitched their sense of self-worth, they've hitched their definition of success in life to these big jobs and all the trappings that come with it. And when those jobs don't exist anymore, it really, it, it becomes an identity crisis for so many. Um, so like all things, you know, it's a complex multifaceted uh, problem, but, but, you know, the work I'm doing and I think the conversation today is really about, well, how do we redefine success? How do we um, create more human organisations where we can bring our whole selves to work? And, if you ask the average person on the street, like describe a psychologically safe workplace, I think most people would say, you know, somewhere where I can be myself. Mm. And yet a lot of the conversations about psychological safety don't really incorporate 
you know, to what extent to what extent are people doing the second job of the surface acting or the image management? And how do we create a, a place where people really can be themselves? Yeah, I actually think you're right about the success and then how the stakeholders inside a business actually view that success. So if success, like for me, I was actually made redundant this year. So and I I'm, I've, was lucky to pick up a job at Monash and I'm really grateful for that. One of the things I found the most difficult was putting so much energy into my team to build them up. So I remember having a conversation with someone. I said, you know, I'm going to really, you know, my, my, I'm worried about my team. And they were like, what do you mean your team? And I'm like, well, I employed like over half of them. I've promoted nearly everybody. Like I put a lot, 10 years into growing people. And that's what actually has made me happy. That's what I actually enjoy most about being in a role where you can actually have people to help get and I mean get better and I, probably my definition of success is somewhat money, but it's actually money to give freedom mm. as opposed from money for money's sake. Like if if they don't want to do, in my sake, I wouldn't think if someone wants to, if he's happy where they are and they don't want to do extra work, I'm actually really happy for that because I think you need a mixture in the team. But where people do want to actually have aspirations to earn more money or do something different or have a different career, I'm really happy to help that as well. And so when you put that energy, so with the identity, it is actually the trappings of the role, the, the status and that. But I think if someone really does care about the team, it's actually about the loss of the team, a loss of the people, a loss of the ability to make an impact. Um, but those things aren't necessarily seen as something that's a, 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 a definition of success. Mm. A great team is not as important as meeting budget. Mm. You know, building a great team and having no turnover is not as important as showing up to an exec meeting and being quiet. Mm. So the definition of success is keep your mouth shut, hit budget, and we'll be all right. But the reality of having a high-performing team is that psychological safety, making people can be them sure they can be themselves, leaning into their strengths instead mm. of exposing everyone for their weaknesses. So if you can get that mix right, you can have a really good team. But that is not what people they they say the words, but there's a there's that disconnect, that dissonance. Anyway, yeah. that's just my yeah. my own thoughts for someone who's been, you know, been in that situation this year. Mm. And just a little thing there. Most people say that I talk to, they say I was made redundant and I always feel the need to correct people and say, no, your role was made redundant. You weren't made redundant. Yeah, yeah, I understand. <laughs> I do appreciate that. Yeah, I went through a redundancy or yeah. Yeah, that's fine. But, yeah, it's definitely, yeah, um, yeah it's a definitely an interesting point. Yeah, and it's challenging. You know, having I, I've my role has been made redundant three times in my corporate career, and the last redundancy I actually asked for and orchestrated, and I still found myself sobbing uncontrollably <laughs> at the end. Yeah. And my boss was like, "Cassie, why are you sobbing? I thought this is what you wanted." But it was that that pull of the heart. But I'm leaving all these fabulous people that I've led and worked amongst for six years. Like it was very emotional. I was unexpectedly so and it is that 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 deep connections and the camaraderie and um these these relationships that are meaningful relationships you know that that we form that that need to be you know unwound or or reimagined in a new way but 
yeah, it's a highly emotional time. Um, so perhaps I'll just ask one last question, Andrew. I mean, I feel like we could keep talking, uh, but perhaps one last question to end. So if there's someone listening to this podcast who who perhaps feels like, yeah, I'm not really able to be myself. I have absorbed this advice to care less or just to keep my mouth shut, to toe the party line, to do what's needed. But deep down, I know that I'm not being true to myself and it's coming at a price. Um, given what you what you now know, what, what, what words of wisdom or advice or what perspective might you share to someone with someone who's find finds themselves in that situation? So the, the two things, it's a great question. Firstly, you, you're, it's a really nice question. I, I think firstly, for me, when I've been really successful is when I've been courageous and been myself. So leaving was the best thing that I ever did in that situation. I've had job changes as well, but those, you know, I've always second guessed whether I should change jobs or whether I should have done this or whether I should speak up or whether I should go have a conversation. Where I've been courageous, it's I've had the most success. When I've been towing the line, even though that's caused me some pain and friction, that's led to not being successful. So, you know, I've had, yeah, I think that's a really... For me, I was thinking about this this morning, like where I've written thing, where I've been courageous, you know, is where I've actually had success. Where I haven't been courageous has led to negative outcomes every time I can think of. Um, but that's hard to say because you still have to be courageous in the moment. The second thing that I really focus on that I think really helps me be myself um, at work is I focus on sort of trying to be kind and trying to give gratitude. So that stuff I can control is, you know, can I do something for someone that someone today to help them out? Um, can I show someone that I'm grateful, even when I'm giving feedback, you know, I'm really grateful for the opportunity or you know, I'm really grateful today to actually have the opportunity to speak to you, Cassie. It's like really, really good for me. Um, uh, but yeah, so I think those two items, those two points for me is if I practice kindness, if I do something for someone else, try to show some kindness and some appreciation and gratitude. And then on top of that, every time I've been courageous, it's led to good outcomes. And every time I've like sort of gone, hmm, let me just let's see what happens here um, and not be myself. Like, let me be quiet for a couple of weeks and try to support an idea that I know is probably not right. That idea probably wasn't right. And that's become a bigger issue and, you know, lost opportunities. Mm. Thanks, Andrew. I really love those those two thoughts there about kindness and about courage. And there's a quote that's coming to mind. I don't know who said it, but something along the lines of that courage is not the absence of fear, but courage is fear walking. And so even though it can be scary, right, to kind of go against the the norm of the the the, the old definition of success. Um we over the long term um we we're far more successful and that that definition of success over the longer term includes well-being and relationships both at work and at home because we know that when we're you know masking or hiding parts of our identity at work often it's the people we love the most that pay the high, highest price when we come home um and so 
Thank you for sharing that wisdom. And I also feel important to recognize that there's a lot of people for really legitimate financial reasons that can't leave leave a job, right? But perhaps mm. there's one small step to move towards courage, one small step to move towards a work environment that really uh, embraces all that you are and allows you to bring your whole authentic, imperfect self to work because that's what we all deserve. Thank, Thank you. you so much, Andrew. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. Um, and I hope that we talk get a chance to talk again soon. No worries. Thank you. Thanks, Andrew. By being true to our deepest selves, we liberate our highest potential and serve the greatest good. As the founder of the Center for Self-Fidelity, I am on a mission to help leaders feel more authentically empowered so we can co-create workspaces where people can thrive, perform, play and belong. Learn more at selffidelity.com.